Burn the Haystack with Josh and Jesse. I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is a podcast all about saving the best and burning the rest. And we are not alone. We are with a esteemed guest who we're very lucky to have. And man, I'm just, I'm so excited about today's episode. But ladies and gentlemen, today we're joined by the one and only Professor Seth Pierce. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. We were just discussing, for those listening, Professor Seth has quite a, the mug collection behind him. Maybe tell us a little bit about the mugs, but also tell us about a, a little bit about yourself too. Who are you? What do you do? Yeah, yeah. So the mug collection started with a friend of mine when I was pastoring in Puyallup, Washington. He was the principal and his office was next to mine. And he had this massive collection of Starbucks mugs and I felt Ooh. some FOMO because I hadn't gotten to travel as much as he did. And then as I started writing more and getting invitations and traveling, I just started collecting Starbucks mugs as a friendly rivalry to, you know, which ones do you have? Which ones do I have? And it's just grown from there as I've gotten to travel and speak and do other things. Yeah, I decorate my office that way. And it's cool. practical. You know, it's it's not just trinkets. I can actually use a, a mug. And sometimes you have to hunt for them, though. Sometimes they're difficult to find. I was in Prague doing research last year, and I forgot to get one. And oh. thankfully, I met a photographer over there who graciously went and bought one, packaged it, and sent it to me. And I Venmoed her, you know, and we, we worked it out. But I was like, right. it was like, the sad thing is it was right next to my hotel too. And it's like the one thing I forgot before I left. I'm so mad. But I do have my Prague one back there, which I'm excited about. And as far as my career, what I do. So the last four years, I have been a professor at Union College. And just this summer, I transitioned and I am now back pastoring in Portland, Oregon, the sunny side Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I do adjunct professor. So I adjunct for Kentucky Wesleyan College online. And also uh, Walla Walla University School of Nursing is just across the parking lot from our church. And so I will wander over there spring quarter and teach a course that we're developing right now off some of the content that I've been researching. And what happened a, a couple of years ago, year ago, two years ago, it all runs together, was I launched a course called Monsters, Faith, and Pop Culture at Union College that became pretty popular. Cool. And off of that, Avenus Learning Community approached me to see if I'd be willing to do a podcast. And so we conceptualized the Beast and Bible podcast, which looks at the intersection of monsters, religion, and popular culture. And we just finished our first season and it got really good uh, ratings, really positive feedback, both in the US, South Pacific, Europe, hopefully other places. Those are just the ones that I know about. And we are greenlit for season two. So Ooh. I'm in the middle of conceptualizing episodes. And in the meantime, we have a Halloween special that's coming out in two weeks, a four-part Halloween special to tide people over between seasons. Oh, that's so, so cool. cool. But, okay, hear me out. How can you be lecturing in monsters when monsters aren't real? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> this is, there's so many questions that come up whenever someone finds out, like, you do what? <laughs> Especially yeah. when you're a, a pastor or you're a clergy of any kind. How is this relevant? So the short answer is for Seventh-day Adventists in our tradition is you look at how we typically do evangelism, how we market our evangelism mm. traditionally. And our flyers, our ads, all of it is full of beasts and monsters. Mm. Monsters are present in sacred texts, including the Bible. 
You've got creatures like Leviathan. You've got all sorts of beasts in Daniel Revelation. You've got dragons, all kinds of stuff. And then in Christian history, especially the Middle Ages, you end up with all kinds of wild beasts. You've got bestiaries where Christians are trying to learn to read God's first book of nature. If they figure if I can, if we can read nature really well, we can read something about ourselves perhaps. And so you have these collections of works with all these fantastical beings that have all kinds of spiritual meanings attached to them by people trying to interpret the spiritual meaning behind, let's say, a platypus or a unicorn, or depending on whatever mythical beast might show up in there based on travel reports, often from people who have not actually traveled to those places, but they'll talk about it anyway, which is really interesting. And so the more you get into looking at monsters, the more you realize how impactful they are on our theology, on our experience as human beings. One interesting thing that comes from a couple of scholars working at a Texas State University is they suggest when studying monsters that for the different cultures that believe in them, or in the Northwest, you have people who look out, look for Bigfoot all the time or elsewhere, monsters are phenomenologically real. So in other words, even if we know they aren't physically real, people experience them as real. And out of that experience, that fear, that paranoia or fascination, it still has a practical effect in how they live their life. And so we look at that and say, okay, how did this monster come to be? Because usually a monster is a cultural body that reflects the fears and anxieties of the culture that produced it. And so we start learning to ask questions about the monsters and folklore that we have because that tells us something about the people that are either fascinated or afraid of it. The other thing that can happen, especially as we get towards Halloween here, which is huge in, in the States, is you get moral panic. And moral panic happens when it's a longer, this is a longer <laughs> discussion. Yeah. But bottom line is you look at Christian history and you've got things like the witch trials, both in you know in Pendle, England, in Salem, Massachusetts. You've got the satanic panic in the 80s where people are genuinely afraid of perceived monstrous threats and they will behave in very real ways. And so it's important as Christian scholars, as sociologists, as communication scholars, theologians, you know, to take a look at this stuff and say, you know, why are we so fascinated um, by them? And when we become afraid of a monster that we experience as real, how do we react? And how can we, yeah, base, th there's a lot there that I could keep talking, but there's just yeah. so much there. And the more I get into it, the more I keep finding, which is fascinating. Mm. Mm. One of the things that we were just talking about before we uh, switched the recording on was The Witcher. I'm a big fan of The Witcher, and that's something that I think has fascinated you as well. And I think the thing that fascinates me the most about that setting and Andrei Sapowski's um, books and the video games and all that sort of stuff, I'm not sure if we uh, need to speak of the Netflix show. I'd prefer not to, mm. but that's just me. Yeah. But it's the intersection between humanity and the monstrous and mm -hmm. the the message that is, I think, some, some, way, some way is a bit heavy-handedly preached but certainly comes through is that sometimes it's not the scary beast with the fangs and the teeth and the claws that is the real monster. It's the human being and the way that they are the people. And obviously yeah. in the Witcher world, the metaphors for racism are very obvious against yeah. other literal races. So... Just touching on that idea, what's what have you found or discovered about that intersection between the monstrous and the way that humans are the people? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And this is almost a common 
trope in any sort of monster hunter action adventure stories is the idea of othering people. And so a monster, if, if you follow Jeffrey Cohen's monster theory, and this came out in 1996, and you can go and read the book, and it's a staple framework for studying monsters. Monsters are the things that break our categories, right? And so we, whenever I'm lecturing on what a monster is and how do we read monsters in literature and film and culture, we look at what a culture's norm norms are, what's normal. When kids are growing up, we play all kinds of games, right? You play doctor, you play astronaut, you play transformers if you're a child of the 80s, like I was, <laughs> whatever it is that you're playing. And we know that we use play to figure out the world, right? To put things in categories. You play house, right? This is what, what a mother does or what a father does, what the kid does. And it's just our way of role playing and figuring out the world. And as we get older, We've got our categories and things make sense. A monster is something that, to use Cohen's terms, is a harbinger of category crisis. In other words, it means our categories are going to get blown out of the water. I don't have a way to categorize this thing. And so you take a look at something like a zombie, which I want to say it's waning a little bit. It really Zombies really experienced a resurgence not too long ago with things like The Walking Dead, World War Z, things like that. But you've got this thing that doesn't fit a category. It's alive, but it's dead. It's the living dead, which doesn't make any sense. And, and you can do that with biblical monsters, right? You've got these amalgamations of it's a leopard with four wings and four heads that doesn't go together. That doesn't make any sense. You've got a beast with what iron teeth, claws. You've got a talking horn. None of this stuff. All my categories are messed up. And that's very frightening for people. So in monster names, often what the monster is is something that... Um, Obviously, it's horrible and things like the Xenomorph from the Alien franchise. It's this mm. horrific thing. But also what we find are human beings in these narratives that behave in ways that humans shouldn't behave, you know, that are cruel, that are, are monstrous. And so a lot of times what monster narratives do is between what appears to be outside of our categories and terrible and horrible. And in the end, we find out, as you pointed out, character-wise, the, the human being is what was monstrous all along in the way they behave. So yeah, that's a very common tension. Mm. It's like mm. the whole uh, tension between the beast and Beauty and the Beast and Gaston. Like you have this yep. handsome man who is charismatic yep. and a leader, but he's the one who's actually rotten to the core. Yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So... Are you suggesting then that this should maybe influence the way we interpret? Obviously, Adventists have a big history in the way we interpret and dance with Daniel and Revelation and all the beasts. Yeah. Should this maybe yeah. be impacting our like the way we interpret it or like our understanding of it? It's a good question. Heather McCumber wrote a book called Recovering the Monstrous in Revelation, and she's not an Adventist scholar, but she really leans into the monstrous as something insightful and positive, whereas what I have found growing up, and this is mostly from Adventists who are established in the church, not the people that we're trying to reach. Oh no, it's the beast. It's the monster's boo on that. Do we have to do that? Can't we have a, a nice pastoral scene with Christ on there? And yet we know at the end of the day, the monsters are what bring the people. People mm -hmm. love the monsters. And I think when you have a better understanding of how monsters function in culture, not just talking about the theology we fight over in Daniel Revelation and uh, what does this monster mean, but when you can learn to appreciate the role that monsters play in every culture, you cannot be as nervous as far as, oh no, here comes the beast. You can lean into it in a way that perhaps is appealing culturally. That's something that isn't, what was what I'm looking for? Something that isn't to be ashamed of. After all, I, I like to point out to people, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ and, and who picked the imagery. It was Christ. <laughs> so yeah. 
Christ picked the monsters. And so when you understand the function of a monster and how to read it, whether it's not just through good exegesis, but through things like monster theory, um, we can walk away with a, a richer understanding of whatever the monster is supposed to represent. Interesting. Yeah, I think for me, something as well that you just made me think about it is that like even the angels are like monstrous. The one in Ezekiel yeah. or whatever that's covered in eyes. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Like even some of, it's not like the bad, only the bad or the like quote unquote bad guys are monstrous, yeah. but even the other ones, they still break out categories. Like I, yes. it's hard to picture something covered in eyes and then telling you not to be afraid. <laughs> You know? And that's something, and, and we looked at in, in the first season of Beast and Bible, horror and the holy, basically, where you've got uh, the word holy, when you start getting into its etymology, both in the Greek and the Hebrew, we tend to interpret it as something that's morally perfect. And it's not like that's a bad way to interpret it, but really what that term means is something other. It means something beyond. And so when you're in, all throughout scripture, when people are encountering very good angels and a very good God, they the same reaction. They hit the deck. They mm-hmm. they spread out. Eagle, don't kill me. And the, I always wonder, like, if the being gets tired of that, right? The angel, <laughs> not again. Can you just stand up? I'm trying. To, I got a message. You don't need to do that. But it's something that breaks our categories. You mentioned the angel in Ezekiel. That's a good one. Going back to Revelation, when John turns and sees Christ, and he's got like eyes of fire and a sword coming out of his mouth mm. and bronze skin. It's ter- terrifying. And John's, I felt like I was dead, basically. I just healed right over. <laughs> and that's Jesus. That's, this, that's our, our loving, gracious Savior. And I think go back to the transfiguration in the Gospels. Even in that moment, Peter starts talking nonsense as soon as he sees Christ transfigured. Can I build three tabernacles and it's good that we are? Like, what are you even talking about? No, you, no, you're a fisherman. You're not a contractor. Don't be building anything. <laughs> the There's this overwhelmed, there's this, this is uh, Rudolf Otto in his book, The Idea of the Holy, talks about this abundance of meaning, this overflow of meaning, right? So I encounter this holy entity and I my finite brain can't, grasp it. And so I implode in that all throughout scripture. So in a sense, we wrestle with this question in in class, is God monstrous? And often monstrous is used as a synonym for evil. And again, going back to the origins of the term, it means something that is other, something that is even a sign or a portent if you're going with um, the etymology. And so God in that sense can be monstrous in in his sheer overwhelmingness and otherness, if that makes sense. I'm wondering how this plays itself out in the every the weekly worship rituals of Christians gathering together. Because when I walk into most churches, the sense that I don't usually get is this awesome terrifying encounter with the divine most of the time like we are very good at going through the same rituals the same practices i'm not going to say going through the motions i don't want to be uncharitable but the ideas that we're discussing right now of seeing the divine as this transcendent, terrifying, otherworldly sort of presence, which I think most Christians would cognitively go, yeah, that's God. God God's unknowable. God is un, un, unreachable. He, his presence is yet nonetheless here. And through the Holy Spirit, it's with us. And when we worship, it's like we're supposedly coming into the presence of God through Jesus and through the the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, sometimes it doesn't quite feel like that. What's your, because you're, 
in the pastoral world as well as in the yeah. academic world. So these are two worlds colliding. How have you been thinking through this idea in terms of worship? So every tradition is going to have its own worship culture. I spent my high school years as a charismatic Pentecostal. I grew up Adventist, but we had a charismatic season in high school. And when you go to worship in a third wave charismatic church, third wave meaning after Assemblies of God, you're looking more at like the Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn type charismatics. People go with an, a sense of expectation that God is going to do something unusual, something overwhelming, something powerful. People might fall out, as they would call it, under the power of God. Who knows what's going to happen? And that's expected. That's part of the culture. I think as Adventists, because of our strong reaction to things like the Holy Flesh movement in the 1850s, have overcorrected a little bit. And James White talks about this. Actually, I have a, I chronicle this. I have a book with Advent source called, oh, it's been a while. So I'm going to blank on my own book title. It's terrible. <laughs> wind, Rain and Fire. I think that's what it's called, a Rain, Wind and Fire. And it looks at some of the history of Adventist charismatic experiences and, and being open to that, not in a sensationalist way, but just being open. And I think as we've institutionalized and with certain leaders wanting more of a controlled experience, we're not as comfortable leaving things open. You, and It's gotten a little bit better, but oftentimes, even if you look at our Bible studies, we'll ask someone a question, give them a text to look up, and then we'll give blanks for the answer. But then right after the blanks, we literally will give the answer. Like we, we have a really hard time <laughs> letting people have any kind of, of freedom because we're nervous. This is maybe, and this is maybe something monstrous for, for Adventists and, mm-hmm. and other traditions too, is that sort of specter of Pentecostalism or that specter of sensationalism. And so this gets into my dissertation research, gets into spectrality and something called hauntology, where our, in some contexts, our services are haunted metaphorically by the specter of sensationalism and and that governs how we choose to worship versus saying hey are we going to leave room for god to have a moment to overwhelm us what would happen if god were to move in a way where people fell to their knees and you read early you know accounts of avenus worship and you do see some of those very powerful experiences and we're not as comfortable with that we're a little bit more controlled and, and, and historically, you know, we've kind of become a very intellectual movement, uh, worship-wise. And we're, we're the people of the timelines, right? We've got timelines and mathematics um, and very rational approaches. Um, and the, the emotional piece we're not as comfortable with. We'll even set up, and you've probably heard this, you can't trust your feelings. And it's funny, we say that and, and you, as though our reason isn't as fallen as our, our, our emotions are. So both of these things are supposed to work together. When you read the Gospels, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart first, and then your mind, and then your soul. And I don't think he's making a hierarchy. I think he's saying, look, all of these faculties have to work together, but we will take reason as a church developing in the modernist era, 19th century, kind of children of the enlightenment. We will privilege that reason over emotions and even say that versus saying, hey, these two pieces need to work together to help us really experience God. Anyway, there's a, just some random thoughts that I've had in, as a growing up Adventist, Pentecostal, Adventist pastor, and watching these dynamics play out. And that's not to say that there aren't Adventist services where people are having overwhelmingly powerful experiences, but typically, at least in my context in North America, you're not going to see the awe and the mm. sense of overwhelming people really crying out to God. And again, not that there aren't, but our typical MO is, is to be a little bit more rational, controlled, subdued. Yeah, no, there are people like that in our Adventist churches. And the overwhelming response that I have felt the church give to the emotional types is a little bit of scorn and a little bit of mistrust. And that yeah. 
And I've even found myself in that category and I've had to catch myself of going, actually, I really shouldn't be cynical about this because what if God is actually impacting this person in a way that I am missing out on? And I think that's the main thing, like the thing that I'm coming at is, are we missing out on a way to experience God that is beyond what we are comfortable with? And I think that that comfortability is potentially quite limiting. You've obviously just said that in much more wise and knowledgeable <laughs> words, but at this point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I I also had a bit of a Pentecostal phase. It's not a phase, mom, but it, yeah, anyway, yeah. it was. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I think like for me, I, it did, it helped me to realize like that I think feelings, they're just as much of a God-created our feelings and emotions are just as much of our God-created like person as our intellect and rationality. And yeah, when the two are married, I think it does create something beautiful. And recently, actually, Jesse was sharing at, at church the other week. I didn't know about this until just recently. He showed me like photos of, what is it, the sphere or the dome or whatever in Las Vegas? Yeah, the sphere in Las Vegas, yeah. Yeah, that new like concert venue or whatever. Yep. And I was like sitting there, I'm like, I love that people went through the effort to design something that even me, I've never seen it in person. I've literally only ever seen photos of it on my like iPhone screen and yet I'm still in awe of what I'm looking at. Yeah. I'm sure going there in person would create so much more awe. And I like, just with this whole talk of awe and wonder for God, yeah. God, you, I don't know, I would love the idea of us reclaiming that longing to bring someone that awe and wonder of God, like building things that actually create wonder whether it's a service whether it's a an actual like art piece or whether it's something like a i'm not going to say a concert venue like that because that's probably well and be well and beyond our scope right. of what things we can build as a church. well i don't know maybe in america yeah. you guys are different over there but just have <laughs> to redirect a few tires and offerings yeah yeah conference fine. and we'll be fine <laughs> yeah yeah that's totally fine yeah but imagine i don't know if we were that interested because i think it is part of even our evangelism we over here in australia we had this I don't know if it still happens, but again, this phase where we had this giant inflatable Nebuchadnezzar statue that they do for all the adventures mm-hmm. and things and they take it around and blow it yeah. up everywhere. Someone had some names for it but anyway. But I still think that the target of that was to do the same thing. It's like someone walks past and they're like, whoa, what is that? Yeah. And I think there is something cool there that we're trying to bring that awe and wonder to people. But I feel like we could scale it and modernize it in a lot of ways. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think so. I, and I think as a very practical people and people who are as Adventists waiting for the second coming, the idea of sometimes building those long lasting structures that inspire awe feels, if I'm building, this is not anything new that people have done this with marriage, they do this with family, they do all kinds of stuff, right? Jesus is coming soon. We don't have time for that. We just need to mass mail the great controversy and get it done. And we will do that because it seems it's immediate. It seems like it's going to be gratifying and we don't have as much focus on aesthetics. I think a constant, and you've probably seen this online, whenever there's a new building, whether it's the NAD gets a new building or any church office gets a new building, there's always people. How many, and I get the impulse, right? How many people could we have fed? How many Bible studies, how many pastors could we have done besides having this new building? And there's always that tension between building beautifully, beautiful aesthetics, which can be a witness and recognizing, all right, we have limited resources. Is this where we want to put all our funds in? There's always that tension. And I think Adventist, again, I'm only speaking North America. I think we tend to lean a little bit more into the practical side of things. I don't want to say practical. It's not 
the right word, but the, I don't know, uh, whatever the opposite of, of aesthetics is, not that we're trying to do ugly things, but I think you know, know what I'm saying, right? <laughs> we're not going to be building cathedral. We don't want a cathedral. We'd rather build 50 quick construction churches versus a $20 million cathedral. It's just not our brand uh, as Avenus. And that's not to say that we don't have nice buildings either. And we certainly have people like Nathan Green who do beautiful paintings. And we have artists who are able to produce beautiful quality things. There are, but even going back to like sculptures, I remember being at Andrews University when the the sculpture was put in outside Pioneer Memorial Church and people were upset. Even though it was a private donor, they were upset of the money, how much it cost. People were actually sacrificing fried chick out front to it like it's an idol. They were making burnt sacrifices. It's and it we just we don't do well. What's that mean? This is why we can't have nice things. We're gonna go veggie meat on fire. Come on, you guys, stop that. But it's just not part of if you talk to a Catholic or an Anglican, it's going to be a very different feel. I do wonder uh, if it, it comes back to the whole Jesus is coming soon impulse, because like yes. when you think of these incredible cathedrals in Europe, many of them took decades, if not hundreds of years to construct. Yeah. And for a church that began in 1844, not began right. a church whose origins started in 1844 with this conviction that jesus is just around the corner literally to right. still being here 150 odd years later but still also saying jesus is coming jesus is just around the corner i do wonder if there's a part of us that goes there's no point because it's all gonna burn anyway yeah, yeah. i'm interested if we change gears for a moment Seth. i've been interested in like you you wrote a few books a while ago, like What We Believe for Teens and then yeah. Manual and Revelation for Teens. I really enjoyed those. I don't remember. I don't think I was a teenager when I read them, but I remember I really enjoyed them. Like that felt a really helpful, a really helpful, I don't know, I guess it's base understanding, like just get like making these beliefs that seemed just so disconnected from every day, just bringing them into the everyday. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the story behind like why you wrote those? And I guess you, you seem to have this desire to help bring understanding to people. Obviously, with your role with lecturing and what you're doing now with the monsters and everything, this desire to bring understanding. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I was in seminary and I had written my first book with Review and Herald called Pride and Seek, which is my testimony growing up Adventist, becoming charismatic and coming back to Adventism. And Pacific Press was in the middle of this What We Believe series. Jerry Thomas had released one for kids that was very successful. To give you an idea, and I, the number is probably less now, but back in the day, I think it was if a book sold, oof, what was it, like a couple, two, three thousand copies, a thousand copies, two thousand, three thousand, it was like a be- Avenus bestseller. That was like, mm. that's the benchmark. And that's pretty typical. Even, even if you go to HarperCollins, most authors are not selling millions of copies. They all depend on John Gresham, J.K. Rowling, Stephen King. Those are the those are the ones making mil- Dan Brown. They're, they're the big novelists upholding the whole publishing industry while they t- while they take risks on us little guys and gals. But I knew that book had sold fifteen thousand copies, and for an Avenist book to move that way, I was like, man. When they called and said, "Hey, we read this book. Would you write the teens version?" I was like. I've got to do this. I, I, this, is, this would be my second book. I'm not established yet, really, as, as an author. This is a, a great invitation. So they wanted to, initially, it was like for 13, 14 year olds with no experience. They wanted like, they want, and they want to give me like a two month deadline. It was un- oh, unbelievable. Wow. It was, we need this Whoa. like two, three months. And so I don't know if somebody fell through, if it was just like, hey, knock this out, you can do it. But Angela, my wife, was pregnant with our first child. I was finishing up seminary, but I knew like I've, I have to do this. And so, 
essentially, thankfully, they got the word count down to about was like 500 words or a thousand or 750 or something like that per chapter. I can't remember, maybe a little less or a little more somewhere in there. And I basically just had no life for two or three months. Every free moment was just finishing this book and it was exhausting. But when it came out, it sold real and still sells. I don't know. I keep, I said, I can do a second edition and I no, no, it's fine. But this book <laughs> still sells. And I think it's, it's gone into two or three different languages. Oh, it's yeah. done 10, 15, 20,000 copies plus it's really sold. And so writing that wave, I remember I wrote a couple of kids books after that, that, that were really fun. The day the school blew up and the campery of doom, sort of an homage to tribute to Judy Bloom's tales of a fourth grade, nothing, but like an avenous version of it. And then I was kicking around projects. I wasn't sure I wanted what I wanted to do. And I said, there's probably a market for Daniel and Revelation or Bible prophecy for teens. Same kind of an idea, right? You're going to distill everything and make it accessible. I'm like, great, you can write it. And part of me was like, I I wasn't necessarily volunteering because I knew it was going to be a a big, messy project. And at the same time, I figured if we can do this, it'll be really helpful. Did Daniel was much easier than Revelation to try to find the moderate Avenist position so I had this massive stack of all our well-known Stefanovich and Pauline and Dukan and commentaries and Maxwell, all these people and trying to say, what is this, the central ideas here, the big picture? Our authors didn't, they would use different terms to refer to the same thing. So I could see that we're not consistent in how we we communicate. So got that done. I was so glad what, when those projects were done and they did well. And then I did one more on Ellen White, which is a little stickier to get done because the White estate has to kind of eyeball things. Mm -hmm. And there were some things I had to massage in there. I'll just leave it there to fly under the radar. It was something. But really the goal of those books, it was funny, actually. We found that adults were buying those books incognito. So we like reverse adapted (laughs) Daniel Revelation to be (laughs) Daniel Revelation made simple. They're not that different from the teen books. I swapped out some illustrations, but basically they didn't want to they don't want to read these big, thick, heavy commentaries. They wanted like a simplified version. So even though it says for teens in the last, like the Ellen White, a life of Ellen White for teens, it's really for everybody and cited my sources, tried to, to make it accessible. And then I was done. I was like, okay, I've, I don't, I've really become that guy and I want to do some other things. I was starting my PhD then and, and moving in different directions and wanting to step outside of Adventism a little bit in terms of publishing, uh, in the meantime, I had started writing with Avent Source on some more theological topics, their I Follow series, some church curriculum stuff, which was great freelance and produced some resources that were not just for kids to establish myself, hopefully a little bit as more of a general author. And that took some time. There's still people who will come up and say, hey, would you write a youth devotional? And no, and not because I don't believe in it, but because it's not where I'm at. I'm not a youth pastor and I don't, I have a youth in my family, but I'm not that guy anymore. So there's been a little bit of pivoting that way. And now mostly doing academic works, building up the CV to pitch some larger projects. Speaking of that, just on that tangent, we are rapidly running out of time, sadly, but I know that you mentioned before to me that you are There's some work coming up in the pipeline for you in terms of chapters for books. Do you want to tell us maybe a little bit about that? And once again, tell us a little bit about the uh, Halloween episode for Beast and Bible as well. That'd be really fun. 
Yeah, uh, it was interesting. So as I was doing research on live action role play communities in Eastern Europe last year and Czech Republic, Eastern Poland, and looking at some of the folklore and even religious dialogue around the media franchise, including the novels from, from The Witcher, one of my friends said, hey, there's a call out for book chapters. Uh, Fortress Press is putting, it has a series on popular culture. They had one. I think there's one on Breaking Bad, religion and theology. They're going to do the Witcher, religion and theology. You should contribute to that. So I reached out, and the author or the editor and I chatted. And so I have two two book chapters coming out, and I don't know what the release date is for that one, but it'll be called The Witcher, Religion and Theology, and it's going to look at the whole series is looking at religion in these media franchises. How is it portrayed? What can we learn from it? What is it? What kind of ideas is it cultivating in, in the minds of people watching and consuming uh, media? Uh, the other one um, happened. I was doing a paper presentation at National Communication Association last year, and someone who saw the presentation set me up with an editor, a video game scholar in California or uh, Canada, and she is in the middle of editing a series of books called The Psych Geist of Pop Culture through Carnegie Mellon University Press. And they've got one on um, The Mandalorian coming out. They've got one on, why can't I, I'm blanking on the other ones. But she had one on, on The Witcher. And so she reached out to me and said, hey, you're a monster religion scholar. Would you do a book chapter looking at Geralt of Rivia through monster theory? So did that. And that book is coming out November 1st, C Press, which is Carnegie Mellon University. It's just called The Sightgeist of Pop Culture, The Witcher. Rachel Cowart is the editor, and she's a phenomenal video game scholar looking at the role of video games in a variety of contexts. So there's that. And there's some other work I might do with those series. I don't know. I'm still trying to gauge how much I want on my plate. And then I'm presenting a paper at the American Academy of Religion this November, looking at the curse of Cain and how the very racist idea of the curse of Cain being black skin and where that comes from. And it has to do, there's several threads of streams of thought with that, but there is a monstrous line of speculation in church history. So distilling that monstrous DNA for that thought and then looking at the idea through monster theory. So that'll be at that in November in San Antonio mm. and the podcast. So I am not ready to do season two yet. I'm taking a little bit of a break. I'm just sketching out episodes, but we wanted to keep things still moving. And every year in the States, there is a moral panic with a side of pumpkin spice that happens <laughs> uh, in mid-September. It usually starts where there's all these memes and, and declarations posted, just, just decrying Halloween. And a lot of the content is either poorly researched or not, or just flagrantly not true. And people get all amped up. There's always new memes every Every year. And so what I thought I would do is do a Halloween special, a four-part Halloween special on Halloween. And what I try to tell people, it's not pro or anti-Halloween. It's just, let's get some good information here and then we can have a discussion about it. So the first episode is called The Nightmare Before Halloween. And it's really dealing with what is a moral panic? Why do we moral panic over Halloween? Where do some of these stories like the razor blade and the apple Anton LaVey saying it's a night of, of devil worship for children. You get the new one is, there's a, is there a Barbie Ouija board now that is being marketed to children? There's there, Every year, there, there's all kinds of stuff. So we're going to deconstruct some of that, talk about how moral panics happen, and hopefully give people some good information. Uh, the next two episodes, I'm going to be talking with a Halloween expert, a historian, and she's going to, over two episodes, walk us through the Cliff Notes version of Halloween history. We'll probably deep dive more next year, but trying to get people... A, some actual history and, and some good resources. And then the final episode, I'm interviewing a colleague of mine who their church has found a non-cringe 
Halloween alternative that has had tremendous impact in their neighborhood. So we're going to, I'm going to talk to him and he's going to share what their church does to, to take advantage of the season in a way that is really meaningful for their community. Um, and that should drop what, the 26th or 27th of this month. Those episodes should drop. Okay. Fair enough. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I just have to say, Seth, if I was a monster and religion scholar, I would be pulling that out everywhere that I could. <laughs> I, that would be my party thing. I'd just be introducing, if I was at the barber, I'd be introducing myself that way. I would just, I would milk that title as, as hard <laughs> as I could. I'm hoping to, to do some more stuff with that on TikTok. Uh, and so my handle is at Professor Pierce. So probably in the next week, I'll start being more regular with it. I've taken a social media hiatus just because we moved this summer and stress and everything else. And, but no, there should be some very consistent and direct content related to this on social media coming out. So if people want to follow at Professor Pierce, either on TikTok or Instagram, that's where it'll start showing up. Fantastic. Professor Pierce, thank you so much for um, the conversation that we've been able to have today. I've really been, yeah, I've been fascinated. I've been tickled. I have, my, my mind has been expanded in all sorts of ways. So uh, where can people find you? Where can people connect with your work? Buy all of your books, buy 10 copies of your books <laughs> per person. Where can they do all that stuff? So all my books are on Amazon and, or you can go to adventsource.org about most should be on Amazon. Sometimes AdventSource just has the Kindle version on um, Amazon. So you have to go if you want the hard copy to directly to them. Uh, as far as the podcast, A Beast and Bible is available on Spotify, Apple, and Google. So all the major platforms, you can find it there. And as far as my social media, TikTok and Instagram, at Professor Pierce. I'm also on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Seth J. Pierce. Uh, you can find me there as well. Brilliant. All right. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. That is Josh, Jesse, and Seth. <laughs>